God's word to us. This is a Psalm of David, Psalm 26. Vindicate me, O Lord, for I have walked in my integrity and I have trusted in the Lord without wavering. Prove me, O Lord, and try me. Test my heart and my mind, for your steadfast love is before my eyes, and I walk in your faithfulness. Do we have another one? Nope? Okay. I do not sit with men of falsehood, nor do I consort with hypocrites. I hate the assembly of evildoers, and I will not sit with the wicked. I wash my hands in innocence. And I go around your altar, O Lord, proclaiming thanksgiving aloud and telling all your wondrous deeds. O Lord, I love the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. Do not sweep my soul away with sinners, nor my life with bloodthirsty men, and whose hands are evil devices, and whose right hands are full of bribes. But as for me, I shall walk in my integrity. Redeem me and be gracious to me. My foot stands on level ground. In the great assembly, I will bless the Lord. This is God's word. Father, please, again, as we're reading this, we need for your spirit to be the one who takes the words that are on a screen or on a page and, and write them on our hearts. Help us to see you for who you truly are. And as we do see you, that we would see that you are worthy of our blessing and honor and glory. And Lord Jesus, wherever we may be in life, we ask that you would meet us in that place and that you would, you would help us to, to realize that you actually are, are present. You're doing a work in our midst, even when we don't always see the work that you're doing. So give us eyes to see that as well, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated if you want. So, integrity. Who, who wants a life of integrity? I mean, is that something that is kind of pretty typical that we would all say, yeah, yeah, we want a life of integrity. Is that a fair statement to say? Do you want others to live with integrity before you? I think generally, unless I'm wanting them to do something they shouldn't do for my benefit, right? Typically, I do want them to live with integrity before me. What, what, what is integrity? Like when you think about integrity, what is it that you're thinking about wanting to be or what you want others to be? Does anybody have any ideas? You may not, but are things coming to your mind when you think of the word integrity or the idea of integrity? Okay, doing the right thing when nobody else is watching. That kind of that kind of sums up a lot of it, right? So, so the the word the word for integrity that's used here that psalm the, the psalmist uses that David uses is this idea of wholeness. It's an idea of completeness. As a matter of fact, one translation actually translates integrity wholeness. That's, that's the idea. Um, Proverbs 28.6 says this. This kind of gives a comparison to give you an idea of what the, the word means. Better is a poor man who walks in his integrity than the rich man who is crooked in his ways. So it's the opposite of living the crooked life. And there's, you know, when you look at it in English, the idea is, I think, living your life in accordance with an internal set of beliefs. So you live your outward life as you believe inwardly. So lots of different ways to think about it. This is a big deal to the psalmist. 
especially David right here in this particular psalm. He's pleading his case to God saying, look, I am walking into integrity. I'm walking in this wholeness. I'm walking in completeness. Um, I'm walking in a way that actually aligns with who, who you are, God. So please do something because apparently things aren't going like he thinks they should be going. That's why he's writing this particular psalm. He's, con- psalm, he's concerned that he might be suffering and might suffer a fate of his enemies, of the wicked. He doesn't want to be treated as the wicked. He wants to be treated differently. So if this is something that we're wanting, if this is something that we want to maybe grow in, to live with integrity, to live with wholeness, how does it happen? What's, what's his overarching emphasis in this particular psalm? Here's where we're going to go. This is kind of the big idea. A life of integrity is dependent on the integrity of another. So the big idea is the life of integrity is actually dependent on the integrity of another, specifically with this psalm, the integrity of the Lord. So how is this the case? This, the, this dependency that leads to integrity. This is a life, and we're just going to run through, I'm going to list them really quick, that kind of outline the passage, and then we're going to go back to them. So this is a life that it, that it opens to examination. It focuses on God's faithfulness. It contrasts different ways to live, and then it stands on grace. So, so with each of these, these first, uh, first two are in verses one through, three, th- one through three. So David begins, vindicate me. And that could be also translated, judge me. Judge me, O Lord. Prove me, Lord. Try me. Test my heart and my mind. He's opening himself up to God saying, what's he saying? Examine me. Examine who I am. Examine my, my actions, my life. Examine what I believe on the inside. Examine my mind and my heart. Now, he does think that he is innocent in this particular situation. Like he's coming before God because he thinks he's innocent and he's saying, look, examine me. But I do think this is a basic attribute of integrity. The way we grow in integrity, which is what? What is this? It's transparency. We talked a lot about vulnerability last week with the last psalm. And that's going to continue to be a, a running theme throughout. But what is this? This is about being transparent. It's openness to be examined before God and maybe also before others. If we want integrity and we open to this kind of examination, if we're open to it, what does that mean? Well, honestly, it's, it's risky. Isn't like transparency a risky thing? Because we may not always want to uh, have our walk and our life Examine. I mean, I don't always really want you to know maybe what I'm doing, but even more so, what's inside of me. This is, a, this is a risky proposition. Being open to examination requires, and I think it's, it actually builds humility. Like, it requires it, but it also builds it. A willingness to not defend. My default is you come at me, I'm going to defend. A willingness not to defend, but be open to examination, open to input. Why do this? Why? I mean, come on. If you can hide and people can think better of you, why not just go that route? Why do this? Well, why put yourself in the vulnerable position? Because it can help uncover the things that we don't want to face, and it can help us face the things that we don't even know are there. When we open ourselves, when we're vulnerable before others, then others can see things maybe we're trying to hide or see things that are hidden to us. 
They can actually see these things. Being humbly open to examination can move us toward greater wholeness as a human being. So if we want to grow as human beings, we need this kind of exposure. But we also do this because of the next thing. Well, it's really the same thing he's saying in verses 1 through, th- one through 3. The life of integrity focuses on God's faithfulness. So where is this coming from? How, how can you be open? How can you open yourself up and let someone really see all that you are when you... What happens when you do that in the world? Very often, what happens when you actually open yourself up to others and you let others see all the stuff that's inside? Does that always go well? No. If it does, you probably haven't lived very long. (laughs) Because it doesn't always go well. When you open yourself up to the world, it is not always a positive experience that you get. This is why for this to be healthy, our openness to examination has to simultaneously focus on God's faithfulness. Okay? It's not ultimately a focus on the faithfulness of others. It's a focusness on the faithfulness of one who's actually faithful. Uh, The psalmist says in verse 1, Judge me. Look, I have trusted in the Lord, he says. Without wavering, try me, verse 3, for steadfast love is before my eyes and I walk in, in your faithfulness. That's what I'm walking in. David's openness is a practical act of dependence on God's, this is another word that's used a fair amount in the, in the Hebrew scriptures, hesed love. It's this loving kindness. It, it's, it's about his loving kindness and his faithfulness, his, his truthfulness. This means to live and grow in integrity, we need to constantly focus on God's faithfulness, God's truthfulness. And others may use your openness against you. Like, we're not saying that if you do this, others aren't going to use it against you. They may actually harm you. But a faithful friend doesn't do that, do they? When you open yourself up to a faithful friend, a faithful friend doesn't use it against you. Our transparency before God can be done shamelessly. Like, we, don't, we don't actually have to be ashamed when we come before him. It, it can be done with humble confidence because he's faithful to always use it to make you more complete. He will always use it to make you more whole, to build integrity. He is always the kind of God who will use your humble transparency for your betterment. I cannot tell you that that's the case with other people. But I can promise you that that's the, face, that's the case with him. How do you know this? Well, well there's lots of reasons, but the, the Bible is full of these kind of ideas. So I'm just going to read a few things. Some of these are Psalms and Proverbs, and then some are from Jesus and some of the apostles. For, for you, this is a Psalm. For you save an afflicted people, but haughty eyes, you abase. This is what God says. This is what is said about God. For though the Lord is exalted, yet he regards the lowly. He's exalted, but he regards the lowly, but the haughty he knows from afar. Uh-uh. I, if, if you're proud, I don't want anything to do with you. Toward the scorners, he is scornful, but to the humble, he gives favor. The Lord will tear down the house of the proud, but he will establish the boundary of the widow. The weak among us, he is there for them and with them. One's pride will bring him low, but he who is lowly in spirit will obtain honor. Well, God says, this is, this is his economy. Jesus put it this way. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. 
That's, that's the kingdom of God. That's the economy of God. And then James and Peter put it this way, and I think they're, they're quoting somebody else. And he's, they say, God is opposed to the proud. Ah, but he gives grace to the humble. Focusing on God's faithfulness helps us to open up to examination that actually builds our integrity. And as this happens, the psalmist goes on in verses 4 through 10 to show that our life also contrasts some different ways of living life. And he, and he kind of does a contrast between two primarily. Um, it's partly seen with where we go, he says, but then also what we love. He gives these contrasts between where we go, some different places you can go, and then also the different loves that you could have. So 4 and 5, verses 4 and 5, if, you have, if you're looking at your Bible, and then 6 and 7, they stand in contrast. So we're going to look at how they stand in contrast. You see a stark contrast here with where you go to, to fill your life, where you go to get counsel, where you go just to be, like just to sit. There's a contrast. Verses 4 and 5 is the negative side. David is saying, hey, this is where I don't want to go. I don't, I don't sit with men of falsehood, nor do I consort with, in other words, nor do I go to hypocrites. I hate the assembly of evildoers. I will not sit with the wicked. So these are people who are living the opposite of integrity. He's describing a lifestyle and a community of people that are living the opposite of integrity. And he says, I don't want to go to there, as Liz Lemon might tell us, right? I don't want to go to there. I don't want that kind of life. I don't sit with, I don't go to, I don't celebrate with the assembly. And then he ends it again with, I don't sit with those that are wicked. He kind of bookends this little area, this little part. It's a kind of chiastic. He's trying to give you this idea of, look, I don't sit, I don't be with, I don't want to be with, and then I don't, I don't sit with them again. Then in contrast, verses 6 through 7, I wash my hands in innocence. And I go around your altar, O Lord, proclaiming thanksgiving aloud and telling of your wondrous deeds. Instead of sitting with, instead of going to, instead of celebrating with, counseling with what he calls the, the wicked, those who deceive, uh, those who work for their own advantage to the harm of others. That's what he's describing in that first section. Instead, he says, he washes himself and he goes to the altar of the Lord where he celebrates Goodness. He celebrates God's goodness. And he, and he tells of God's great acts. This is a contrast of lives. Do you see that? I mean, he's making a deliberate contrast. Two different ways of living. And, he contra and he's contrasting where you go to celebrate, where you go to get counsel and direction, where you go to eat, where you go to feed your heart and your mind, where you go and why you go there tends to build or tear down the life of integrity. Do you know that for your own life? Have you seen that in your own life? Where you go to feed, what you, what you eat is what you are, right? Where you go to feed, where you sit is going to affect you. So with this contrast, what determines where you go? This is where he gets into verses 8 through 10. Why go to one place and not the other? Well, why go to the house of self-preservation? Like that's the first place. Or the house of God. I mean, why go to one or the other? You go toward what most captures your imagination and your affection. So, so whatever you love is where you're going to go. 
No matter how much you try to convince yourself to do one or the other, you're going to end up going to the house that most captures your affection in your heart. David says, for him, verse 8, Oh Lord, I love your house. I love your house. The, the place where your glory dwells. He wants to be around God's glory. He wants to be around God's life and God's light. He doesn't, he doesn't want the other way or to live in the space that opposes and even mocks integrity. He says, I don't, I don't want that. I want your house. Don't sweep me away, he says in verse 9. Don't sweep my soul away with sinners, nor my life with bloodthirsty men, and whose hands are evil devices, and whose right hands are full of bribes. He doesn't want to be swept into. He doesn't want to be, he doesn't want to be trapped in the house where people destroy each other. Have you been in a house where people just destroy each other? He doesn't want to be in that house. The, the house where, where, where you bribe to get what you want, where you can't really even trust the person that you're living next to because they care more for their interest than your interest. He doesn't want to be there. Because, because in that house, um, the number one value is me. In that space, the number one value is self. It's a haunted death house. It's a Saw movie, if you've ever seen a Saw movie, which I'm not encouraging, right? It's horrible. It's an awful place. He wants to be where the opposite is true, where real glory and self-giving good dwells. And he hates this disintegrating space that celebrates and grows and feeds on its own harm and the harming of others. In that space, man is central. In that house, man glories in his own glory, and he glories in the very thing that kills him. Like he thinks it's life, right? But it's actually destructive. He doesn't want this. The psalmist does not want to be swept into or sucked into that house. Instead, he wants God's good house. He wants God's, like, glory space. So here's a contrast. Two ways and two loves, Right? You could call it two orientations as well. The glory of self-gain, that, that, is, that is one way and that is one thing that can capture your heart. The glory of self-gain or the glory of God's good presence. Two different ways. The life of integrity is a life that stands in contrast to the way that we and the world tend to work, either, either blatantly or subversively. That is kind of the way that we default towards, isn't it? It's the way the world, even though we cover it up, we typically, we, we, you know, whitewash it so that it looks better. That's the way that the world typically works. The life of integrity has a different way. And then he brings this kind of full circle at the end of the poem where he speaks again of integrity. So this is 11 and 12. So he brings up the word integrity again. Verse 11, as for you, as for me, I, I shall walk in my integrity. Redeem me and be gracious to me. My foot stands on level ground in the great assembly. I will bless the Lord. He, he's, using these, he, he's using the imperfect tense here when he says, I shall walk and I will bless, describing not just what he has done, um, but what he plans to keep on doing as he moves forward. So he's talk, he was talking about what, how life was, but he's saying, I, want, I, want to, I shall keep doing this. This is what I want to keep doing because of what he is depending on. Like, why is he speaking with this kind of confidence? It's, it's based upon what his, his dependence. In verse 11, it says, redeem me and be gracious to me. Show favor, be compassionate, be, be merciful. 
He's depending on God to do what? I mean, he says it. Rescue me. He's, he's depending on God to, to redeem, to show grace and mercy, which is why he believes his foot stands on level ground. Where is he depending? What, what is he depending on? The level ground is not his integrity. This is where I think I know I can get kind of twisted and turned, but we've got to listen carefully to what he says. He's not saying his level ground is his integrity. The level ground is God's integrity. It's God's grace. His dependence is not on his integrity. It's on the integrity of God's mercy and his grace. This whole thing, this life, stands on God's grace. I mean, this is where he leads us. David and others who may resonate, like we may, echo, we may want to echo this song. Um, and especially, where, especially in places where we feel like we have been in the right and we've been wronged, right? Where we've lived with humble integrity. I mean, the psalmist is writing this for us to say, there are times that you're going to live in integrity and, and the world is not going to acknowledge that, right? There are those places, and I'm grateful that we have psalms like this, where we've been consistent maybe with our inner and our outer life. Um, Maybe even we've walked in, in line with what God wants us to do. Maybe we've done this. But even David, I mean, you can't go too far from this psalm without seeing that even David, who's crying out and he's pleading for God to see his innocence in this situation, is that always the case for this guy? If you know anything about the life of David, is it always the case? No. His life has... To put it mildly, inconsistencies in integrity. There were times that he was, not innocent, he was not the innocent one, but he played the role of the wicked enemy towards an innocent other. There are times in his life, other people were saying this psalm about him. What do you do with that? Um, so we could go several places with this throughout all of scripture, but specifically with David. So probably next summer or maybe two summers when we get to Psalm 51, this is also a Psalm of David. And it says this, it's a Psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba, after he had uh, seduced or potentially raped Bathsheba. This is the Psalm that came out of that. Have mercy on me, oh God, he says. Oh my God, have mercy on me. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. I know my iniquity, my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me against you, and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified in your words, and you're blameless in your judgment. He's opening himself up, and this time he is not innocent, and he's exposed. David is pleading in verse 51, in chapter, in Psalm 51. He's pleading, he's depending upon God's mercy, God's grace, God's integrity. Because his own integrity has failed. If he's left to his own integrity, he's totally screwed. He's pleading on the integrity of another. Back in Psalm 26, this psalm is most purely the cry of a more innocent one. Like David's writing this definitely, but he's writing as the king, as a representative of the people. And he's foreshadowing a more innocent one. The greater David, 
Jesus who is coming is the one that can fully sing this song. Because he's the one who is open to examination, right? Talking about Jesus. When he was tested, he was proven innocent. Like, there is no shadow in this guy. Jesus is the one who focused constantly on his father's faithfulness and whose life, his way, his direction, and his love was the starkest contrast, not only to his enemies, like clearly Jesus stood in contrast to his enemies and to the wicked, but even to those who thought that they were pretty innocent and looked pretty good. He stood in stark contrast. Next to Jesus, even the best of us are a dark contrast to his light. We are in emptiness to his wholeness. In contrast, Jesus embodied he didn't just like want to be in the house of God's glory. He was the embodiment of the glory of God. And not only did he stand on grace, like his dependence upon God's mercy towards him, his father's mercy, he was the ground of grace upon which we can now stand. When our integrity not only crumbled, but we actually, like historically speaking, the human race toward the perfect one, when we actually resisted and we rejected and we ignored Jesus as the true life, as, as the one who was actually the whole one, as, as the wholeness, in our rejection, Jesus suffered the pain and the consequences of our, of what? Of our falsehood, of our hypocrisy, of our evil, of our wickedness, of our dishonesty, of our corruption, of our disintegration. He, he accepted that. And he wasn't saved from the pain in his integrity. As a matter of fact, he suffered because of his integrity. Like, does integrity avoid the suffering? No, the integrity actually brought suffering onto the perfect one. He was tried and tested and he was condemned by us, by the our unintegrity, by our lack of integrity. But in his resurrection, he was ultimately vindicated by his father. Okay? Yeah, 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 yeah. He suffered it. His integrity didn't save him the pain. But in his resurrection, he was actually vindicated by his father as being the life of integrity. How do we know it's true? Because he rose from the dead. That's how we know it's true. That's how we know he is the fully, full of integrity one. Rather than using his vindication when he comes back, his exaltation. Like, what do you do when you've finally been vindicated? I told you I was right. I told you I was right. What am I going to do with that kind of power? What am I going to do with that exaltation? Probably not what Jesus does. He didn't come back to crush his enemies. He used it then to extend mercy and grace and forgiveness. That's what he does when he's vindicated. This is where his grace, his life of integrity, became our level ground. This is how he redeems us, how he extends grace to us, mercy to us. The, the more we depend upon his integrity by standing on his grace, like there is no other way to grow in integrity. From the Christian story, there's no other way to grow in real, like heartfelt, honest integrity unless you are standing on his grace. The more we genuinely enjoy him, that's the result. We bless him, not, not just individually, but together. As the psalmist says, in the great assembly, I will bless the Lord. We do this as a great assembly. Like, like together we get to do this. And the more this happens, the more his integrity 
His grace then begins to infect us. We start eating and drinking the grace that he has, the, in, the, in, the integrity of his grace, the more it enables us to walk in his way, to walk in his love, and to grow in his kind of integrity. 